the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. AM 1160. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can find old shows online at 1160hope.com. And as always, we love phone calls. We love interaction. You can call us at 312-660-2594. That's 312-660-2594. You're laughing at me because you think I beg for phone calls. I don't think you beg for phone calls. You do beg for phone calls. We need somebody to call today. It will affirm me. Are we were we sure that I was the homeschooled one of the two of us? Because they're like, review us. Please leave a positive review. I, I need to hear from you. We are we are quickly learning as we've been together here for six weeks that apparently I have some uh, some issues of wanting people's affirmation. Please like me, love me, rate me. So, rate me. Oh, gosh. Anyway, this is The Common Good. Happy Thursday, everybody. We are glad that you are joining us uh, again as we are together. Uh, Ian, starting with a happy story that just goes like this. The tiny baby boy, the tiniest baby boy ever, has been released from the hospital healthy. Why don't you give us some of that good news? Yeah, a little boy from Japan said to be the tiniest baby boy ever has officially been released from the hospital with a clean bill of health, ready to start his life. This infant weighed just nine and a half ounces. That's crazy. Nine and a half ounces. He was delivered via C-section at just 24 weeks back in August and, uh, if you look up this story, I, nine and a half ounces is already like a jarring enough figure. Um, look at the image; like it's oh, it's absolutely like beautiful slash terrifying. Yes. And oh my goodness! I, I mean, we don't always start the show with like feel good stories. It feels like for the last month, there's been a lot. There's been a lot to rail against and argue about. But I mean, I I saw this story and I thought, let's just bring some good to the world. Like that that is an amazing journey. Uh, and to see like the before and after photo of this kid is is absolutely breathtaking. It's amazing. It, it says at the time of the birth, the little baby could fit in a pair of cupped hands. That's crazy how oh, small word. that is. It's like a little baby bird, right? right or like, right. Uh, and so, uh, what is amazing too, uh, like you said, it, it primarily is a feel good story. You and I both read that. We were like, oh, this is nice. Let's let's go with this, right? Um, but if I could turn it to some of the issues of the day, right here, uh, you and I. Uh, on almost a daily basis with this culture that we're part of and living in as pastors and as radio hosts, we, we deal with the abortion issue mm-hmm. and the, and, and the, uh, that God has knit these babies together in their mother's womb. We read that and that there is value in life and that uh, our culture, our politics seem to be pushing that further and further about what, at what stage you're able to end the life or abort a baby. 
And when I read that a baby or the medical advances that we've made has allowed a nine and a half ounce, 24 week baby to exist outside of their mother's womb. Yeah. Makes me so happy about the advances we've made. And it is that much more heartbreaking uh, about the trajectory of our culture when it comes to issues of life. Yeah, there's a there's a really great uh, five minute video, too. It's a few years old, but it was uh, a part of a sermon from Matt Chandler who I talks about it. some of the stuff, some of those advances that you're referring to and how some of our laws and policies were developed well before we had these advances to understand um, the stages of development, what was going on in the brain, what was going on with the uh, nerve endings and things like that. And, I mean, literally being able to see our baby smile at us mm. via sonogram is um, is not only just, a, I think, a marvel of technological development, but also something, like you were saying, is really, really convicting. And, you know, if you've listened to us for any length of time, you know that Brian and I, we don't agree religiously or theologically or politically on everything. Um, and, you know, I can be all over the map in a number of different issues. <laughs> but for, for, this, for this issue in particular, man, like, that is... I, I don't know. I'm probably additionally emotional about all this, having just, you know, yes. just having our second child and like thinking about both of our our kids coming about five weeks early. And also as pastors, I've I've been called into hospitals, into uh, Nick, NICU wards and um, and praying with young couples and seeing little two pound, three pound babies. Mm-hmm. And um, by the grace of God, in a lot of cases, seeing them survive and thrive and grow big and strong. And there's just so much wrapped up in that. But it, there is something and this will sound strange, but there is like a weird, uh, beautiful honor to being allowed into these like really terrifying circumstances. You know, when you're standing in a NICU room with parents that are 20 and 21 and their little baby is hooked up to more wires than, you know, than the weight that they have themselves. Yeah. Like looking at those types of scenarios does give you just, uh, I think, a renewed sense of the, the the dignity and sacred nature of life, the sanctity of life. Yeah, and um, yeah. I know that not, not everyone can experience exactly that as pastors, but I think it's all the more important that pastors then um, vocalize these things, that share these things and their opinions about what, what they've experienced. And one thing I always appreciate about you when we talk about the abortion issue and life is you always get very pastoral, and I'll do it here, and you say, if you're out there and you've had an abortion, uh, there is grace and there is there is forgiveness. Absolutely. There Absolutely. is restoration in Jesus. Like that is the good news of the gospel. Um, and what I also want to say is when we read these kind of stories uh, and, and when we more more broadly talk about abortion and, and the rights of babies and all of these things, it's just a reminder when I read about a 24-week, nine-and-a-half-ounce baby uh, that it's not a political issue. It, it, I know it is in our country, but it shouldn't be a political issue, and it's not about progressive and conservative, and quite frankly, uh, it's not even primarily about um, the wishes of the mom or even the dad. It, this is about the life of a child, and, and, and I love like the 4D sonograms they have now. Like you said, you could see your baby smiling at a young age, or, or we know when the heartbeat starts at so young – but the fact this is I don't know why I, I feel borderline emotional about the fact that a 24 mm. week old baby under a pound survived. Yeah, right. That is that is that is amazing. Yeah. And it just lights my fire more to say we've got to do something about this in our country. Well, and, and if I could push back a little bit, I think that it does have to also be a political issue. I think maybe it depends how we use the word politic. I guess or I political. Say it's not primarily. OK, political. yeah, that That's I would right agree there. with, because I do think sometimes it is easy for us to whether we're talking abortion or gun rights or immigration or walls 
Um, sometimes I think the temptation for the Christ followers to say, I don't get involved in politics. I don't like, well, at, uh, at the core though, on either end of political discussions often are people who are being oppressed or exploited. So in some ways we need to be political. In fact, I would say that Jesus in a lot of ways was political. The early church was political. Um, maybe not partisan. (laughs) Maybe, Maybe there is a distinction between, you know, we're not, we're not looking to, um, integrate church and empire. I think that sometimes maybe maybe that's a segment for a later date. <laughs> How do we recognize we'll when, do that on when election day? <laughs> yeah, gosh, that'll, that'll be our last day at work. Uh, but I do think it is important to say though. It's sometimes uh, it is it is um, it is right to say, man, gosh, we got to be a people of prayer. We got to be a people of pleading to God um, for the healing and restoration of families, and yet also then to say. Um, man, if it's if it's a politic that uh, defends marginalized or the exploited, then we should also be about that politically as well. I yeah. think. And another way it's political, I guess, is that you cannot ignore the the statistics that when we deal with issues of poverty, when we deal with issues of right. injustice, and start to get them improved, abortions go down. Yeah, this is not just don't get an abortion. Uh, they go. The, the, there's holistic. There's other th- thank you. There's the word I'm looking for. It's holistic. Um, but man, the church and all of us need to just stand up for these twenty-four week old nine ounce babies inside their mom uh, and outside. So, uh, big issue for the church, one that we need to keep fighting um, and keep talking about. Well, we're off and running here on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Coming up next, Ian and I are going to tackle a scary thing going on with teens—a scary thing spreading across social media called the suicide challenge. Uh, We're going to talk about that next on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. This is The Common Good with Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. AM 1160. Back to the common good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. You can contact us if you would like at 312-660-2594. That's 312-660-2594. And Ian, I think uh, we joked in the first segment that we like to just beg for phone calls, but I'd actually like to hear from people about this upcoming one, specifically Mm. parents of teenagers, uh, as we talk about this kind of thing going across social media, because you and I are both parents. Uh, and every now and then we do segments that are more in your alleyway with newborn and toddler. And every now and then we hit ones that are more close to my close to home for me. I've got a, a high school daughter, a fifth grade son and a fourth grade son. And so this next one kind of brings in my world, uh, brings it into my world and just yeah. how social media and things, quite frankly, outside of the control of some of uh outside some of our control as parents is just really scary. So let me read the headline. A lot of you have probably heard this going on right now. It says this teens target of suicide challenge spreading on social media. What is it that's going on here? Yeah. First couple of sentences kind of explain it all. It says a suicide game called Momo is spreading on social media, prompting police in multiple countries to issue warnings about it. The Momo challenge asks people to add a contact via WhatsApp they are then urged to hurt themselves or commit suicide. And there's all sorts of speculation about, for example, like a 12-year-old girl in Argentina who took her own life and they're wondering if it's connected to this app. There's mm. another story I read on a different uh, on a different site about an 8-year-old boy that was encouraged to uh, bring a knife to his throat. Like it is – it's a legitimate – it sounds like it's out of a movie. Like it's absolutely terrifying. And, and you and I have, I think, done a pretty good job of 
trying to make it clear that we're not anti-technology or anti-social media. I think sometimes the church and Christians can feel like just bury your head in the sand and hide, you know, hide out, hide away from the big bad world. And then I read stories like this and I think, all right, maybe that is what we need to do, <laughs> right? Maybe let's just go move to the forest like this. Uh, and you know, the image of the, of the Momo character is this like really, it's this woman like with grotesque features. It's a, it's a legitimately terrifying image. And, uh, it seems to actually be growing uh, in popularity among young people. Yeah, it's terrifying, and it's it's now been hacked into, like, YouTube, kids' YouTube, where you think it's safe or Jeez. this or that. It reminds me, you and I said, sometimes it feels like, like you said, like social media, like keep your kids away from all of this stuff for as long as possible, but it's right. impossible to. And um, it is it is really scary. And then it just comes to home. You and I were, were here getting ready to do our show, just kind of doing some show prep. Uh, and I'm thankful I got an email from my fourth grade daughter's teacher. Mm. So she's my daughter's nine years old, yeah. right? Uh, my fourth grade daughter's teacher. And it just said this. Hi, parents. Today at school, some children were overheard talking about the Momo challenge. I'm sending Gosh. you articles to provide information. I just wanted you to be aware of this. Should your child come home and share that they've heard classmates talking about it at school today? And so, I, you know, you and I were literally planning to talk about this on the show today. We were reading about it, and then I get an email from her teacher going, hey, there's kids talking about it. And I'm like, oh, man, talk about coming close to home. Yeah, no kidding. I might have to talk about this with my daughter right. and just kind of start heading down the world of, like, we've never even talked about suicide, like all this kind of stuff. Right. And, man, it just feels like the things are pressing in at younger and younger age that it has to do with social media and other things. Uh, it's just scary. It's, uh- it's just crazy. How do you talk to your nine-year-old about this then? Like, I know you just got this email, but legitimately, you just said something that I didn't even think about. She might not even know what suicide is yes. or, like, really understand the de- – like, how do you talk about an issue that involves another issue that you also haven't talked about right, that's right. really sensitive, really current, though, and, and arguably has some urgency to it, right? Yep, yep. So generally in my house, what I do is that I, I say, hey, go talk to your mom. <laughs> smart, smart man. I say, yeah, your mother needs to speak with you. Uh, no, I suspect that especially if it were to come up, if she's like, yeah, I heard kids talking about it, um, we'll sit all three of our kids down and be like, listen, um, this is a bad thing. Here's why it's bad. Mm. Like, here's why, you know, I do think that it would be wise to begin having the conversation. Like, here's what some people do when they're sad or they are, they, they think that, you know, people are bullying them or that and, and start wading into the, the idea of, People kill themselves, but not mm. really dwell on it. And mm. I would, I would be naive to think that my fourth grader and my fifth grader, and especially my high schooler, don't know what it is like mm. suicide is. But, um, but just wading into that and being like, "Hey, guys, if you're what you want to have the conversation with them, and especially when, as your kids get older, but you want to have the conversation. Hey, uh, mom and dad are a safe place if right. you're feeling sad. Right. Mom and dad are a safe place if you're being bullied." Mom and dad are a safe place to come to. And and one good thing about, the, like, at least the public schools, and I'm sure where you live it'll be this way, Naperville too, but our public school has has counselors you can talk to who are mm. really, really good. Social workers, I should say. Uh, we've had great things, like you said, like you saw, our teachers sending us emails right now. Like, that's really comforting to know that teachers uh, are sending stuff. But, man, you're going to find this. Like, things just get younger and younger that I never – we never thought of when we were kids. I, fourth grade, I wasn't thinking about these things. Yeah, no kidding. Um, like, you know, a little off subject, but you, I'll prepare you now. If you send your kid to public school, it will freak you out the first day they come home from mm. kindergarten or first grade when they tell you they had an active shooter drill. Mm. And you're just like, wow, I'm 
thankful that they're doing that, but I'm really sad that they have to do that. And so I think the word is for parents, um, you got to enter into these conversations because your kids are getting it, whether it's conversations of, you know, suicide and this kind of thing, or it's, or it's conversations of sexuality or it's conversations of whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You're naive to put your head in the sand and think they're not getting it from somewhere on the playground or in the classroom or wherever else. Well, I'm, I'm reading right now a story in the Atlantic though. It says Momo is not trying to kill children like eating Tide pods and snorting condoms. The Momo challenge is a viral hoax. He goes on to say, hey, everyone's been freaking out, um, but it's it's a viral hoax perpetrated by local news agencies or whatever, and that there isn't actually evidence that kids are actually doing these things or that they're actually being caught. In a, like that's This is where it gets really messy for me yep. because it's like, okay, I literally I Google searched it, and there was like four completely opposing articles right next to each other. One says it's like it's real, talk to your kids about it, and the very next one's like it's a hoax, it doesn't exist. The third one was like, we don't know what it is. Maybe it is or it isn't. And I think, okay, <laughs> like I'm not a Googling expert, but at the very least, that's a that's a frustrating result. If you're trying, if you have kids of teenagers, yep. and you're trying to really get to the bottom of, okay, so what actually is happening right now? Um, it's harder than you think to actually get to the truth of what's being what's being communicated, what's actually right. what's real, what is what is meant to be inflammatory, meant to be, you know, a little maybe fear mongering. Like I don't. How do you navigate that? Oh, I guess for me, now hearing you say that, I think the answer in that in that dilemma for me is to not overblow it, to make it a big deal if it's not a big deal, hmm. but to take uh, what could be um, – I, I want to go to believe that, you know what, if there's all these disparate um, articles and stuff, I'm going to believe what could be worst hmm. just in case that's true. Okay. And I'm going to have that conversation with my kids and – and I think this needs to spur on a conversation about social media with your kids. Right. Um, because it's happening earlier and earlier. So what are you going to allow your kids in on? Uh, you and I have had this talk many times, not just about screen time, but, you know, e- even some some apps that seem really innocent, they're getting bombarded with, you know, commercials or whatever else. Um, I guess the message I want to say is parents, be the parent. <laughs> yeah. Be the parent of the social media. Be the parent of the screen time. Don't expect your teachers, the teachers, to protect your children. Know what's going on in their world. Have the conversations because you're going to want to have the conversations with them when they're teenagers. Well, that begins when they're much younger. You need to put those seeds in place. Well, and to teach your kids to think critically too, right? Yep. Like I think this is something that uh, as technology and social media continues to morph and change and develop and evolve, uh, I think it's going to be all the more important in the next 5, 10, 15 years to be raising up a generation that can disagree, yes. right? Can have intelligent discussion, but can also have the capacity to think critically. That when something seems inflammatory, say, "Okay, you might be right. That might be totally true." Um, but to also ask good questions, to not be—I think this actually is in the Bible somewhere, right? <laughs> to not get knocked this way or that way by every possible yes. wave that comes our way, yep. um, but to ask good, thoughtful, intelligent questions and to engage in a helpful dialogue and to help other people do the same, I think yeah. is a really important I lesson. guess I would wrap it up this way. I'd say as a parent, I, want, I don't want to be alarmist, but I want to be engaged. Yeah, that's good. I want to be involved uh, and so that my kids are ready to tackle the world that they're entering into. Well, coming up next, we're excited. We're going to be interviewing an author by the name of Winfield Bevins. He wrote a book called Ever Ancient, Ever New, The Allure of Liturgy for a New Generation. It's getting at this next generation seems really drawn to the old liturgies, and we're going to talk to him about that. Coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. 
This is The Common Good with Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. AM 1160. Coming up next on The Common Good, Ian and I are going to talk to Winfield Bevins, the author of a new book called Ever Ancient, Ever New, tackling the fact that the new generation, this next generation of believers, seems to be really drawn to the old liturgies. We're going to have that discussion with him. But first, you might remember the worship albums called City on a Hill with artists like Jars of Clay, Third Day, Phil Kagey, and Sixpence None the Richer. It was compiled by a band called The Choir who wrote the praise song, God of Wonders. Well, the choir will be in live concert along with Michael Rowe on Friday, March 22nd at the Warehouse Church in Aurora. And it's a free concert. See all the details and reserve your seat at thechoir.net. That's thechoir.net. AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined again by Ian Simpkins. You can follow us on Facebook at uh, The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show or online at 1160hope.com. There you can find all sorts of old content uh, and old shows. Uh, Ian, we love to get new books. As pastors especially, we love to read books, especially books about the next generation and and how they are being reached. And with that in mind, uh, we are excited to join, uh, to have joining us today, Winfield Bevins. Winfield is the director of church planting at Asbury Seminary in Wilmore, in Wilmore, Kentucky, and um, he is the author of a new book called "Ever Ancient, Ever New." Winfield, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it's uh, great to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. I'm fascinated by this book. It's because the allure of liturgy for a new generation. And I guess I would just start there. What is that allure? Because all of us pastors have heard this, how the new generation is kind of flocking towards uh, ancient traditions and old liturgy. What do you think that allure, where does that allure come from? Yeah, I think, I think young adults, young people are really looking for a sense of rootedness, a sense of being connected to something that has a, you know, that is ancient, that has roots, that's kind of older than the past 20, 30 years. Mm. And it's kind of everything old is new again. Mm. Um, you know, and so the book really features stories from young adults across the U.S. And so it has a very narrative kind of feel to it. Um, so it's based on real kind of interviews uh, with young adults. So what, so one of the things, Winfield, that I found fascinating is uh, here in Chicagoland, uh, my friend Aaron Nequist was actually running uh, a gathering called The Practice um, at, at the Chapel of Willow Creek, and um, I was able to be a part of that a number of different times, go on some retreats with them. I was amazed at how ecumenical that effort was. There was people old and young of different shapes, sizes, and colors. Like It, it was really remarkable to me uh, how how diverse... Uh, the crowd was that was drawn to this particular structure of gathering. What what have you experienced? You said that this is from a number of young people from across the country. What are some of the differences as you look at the different landscape of the United States and how how different liturgy is like practiced and lived out? And and what can we, what can we learn from some of those diversities? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I, I I think that's kind of gets at it as well as this is an ecumenical movement. It's not about just embracing a particular. Uh, tradition, but it's about kind of 
opening the treasure chest of church history, if you mm. will, and kind of bringing it into the present. Uh, and that's Aaron's exactly. Uh, Aaron is kind of one of the people that I dialogued with and kind of looked at as I was writing the book. Mm. So what they did at the practice is an example. Uh, it's happening uh, all across the U.S. Um, you know, I interviewed several hundred young adults, various wow. backgrounds. Some of them, you know, are appropriating in their tradition. Some of them are actually embracing kind of more of the high church tradition. Mm. So it really is kind of this ecumenical movement that's happening. Um, it's happening in all denominations, yeah. um, new churches. I call them neo-liturgical churches mm. that are kind of embracing um, the old and kind of a new kind of postmodern context. I love it. I, I'm reading in your bio, it also says that you come from a you know, quote-unquote low church background, but you eventually found your spiritual home in the Anglican tradition. So uh, you've got all these interviews with people in your book, but I'm curious, what was that journey like for you? Yeah, in many ways, um, the book is uh, very personal in that sense that, you know, I came from kind of a low church background, uh, really came to faith at the age of 19 um, and got got engaged with uh, planting new churches, have worked with all denominations and also globally uh, with the work that we do here at Asbury. But part of my own journey was just kind of a longing to kind of have that sense of historic rootedness, mm. looking for rhythms, um, it, it kind of a journey of spiritual formation, just looking for, you know, substance that, you know, the ancient practices kind of give us. And so for many evangelicals, maybe those that are coming from evangelical backgrounds are kind of suspicious of tradition and suspicious of right. liturgy. Right. Uh, but what I found is it's not a denial of for those coming out of evangelicalism. It's not a denial of the Bible or Jesus uh, or you know salvation. It's actually kind of represents a renewal, a hunger for a higher synthesis. For, mm-hmm. And really, it's a it's a hunger for discipleship and mm-hmm. rhythms and just kind of rootedness. I love that. Okay, so one of the the things that I I hear a lot. Uh, particularly from people who uh, grew up in sort of like low church uh, spaces or are currently a part of one and love it, but also mm-hmm. feeling this this itch toward what you're talking about, and but they're not interested in leaving their church, right? So um, a lot of what Nikos was doing, it was a separate gathering. So a lot of people who attended Willow on a Sunday morning would head to the practice in a, in a Sunday evening. Um, what would you mm-hmm. say to the pastors and leaders or just general church people who are like, nope, I, I really love kind of my mainline, uh, either evangelical, non-denominational community. Um, I like sort of what that offers. And yet I'd love to grow in this area of paying attention to liturgy and learning more and actually experiencing that with other people. Like what, what advice or, or resources would you point people towards if they're interested in that kind of way? Yeah, I think that's kind of what I've tried to do in this book. I, there's the middle section actually looks at churches that are kind of more, uh, you know, non-traditional that are beginning to embrace, you know, traditional practices. Mm -hmm. Uh, One way for like pastors and leaders who are saying, how do we begin to integrate? How do we begin to um, incorporate this into our context? The church calendar is is really one of the best ways. uh, And really the church calendar, the liturgical year, is essentially this ancient discipleship uh, process of following Jesus through the church year. Mm. And, and so we're getting ready, for instance, next week is Ash Wednesday that starts 40 days of Lent. Right. And I tell those in like low church backgrounds, like what could be 
uh, better than spending 40 days of fasting and praying and seeking the face of Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. and that's essentially what these these ancient rhythms, these seasons of the church, uh, we can bring that, you can contextualize that, you can bring that into a contemporary context, and mm. as a church planner, that's what we did 10 years ago. Our church started with just embracing the church calendar and actually started in the season of Lent. We just mm. took a lot of low church People, we had planted a church on an island, um, Outer Banks, North Carolina, a little stretch of island, a bunch of surfers. We started following, um, you know, the church calendar, and you know, it, the rest is history, if you will. Well, I, you got me there because one of my favorite places to go in all the world is the Outer Banks of North Carolina. I <laughs> love it out there. Love it. I spent every it's, every yeah. summer we would go to Duck, North Carolina for oh, man. my whole yeah. childhood. So you brought me back right there. Uh, you closed the book talking about uh, – so a lot of it's about liturgy um, at the church or with young adults, but you bring it home, uh, so to speak, talking about families and how you can incorporate this into families. Could you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Um it kind of hit home as I was writing the book, you know, I'm, you know, I've got a family. We've got three, three girls, 15. So pray for me. I got three girls, 15, 12, six. Oh. Um, I got my hands. <laughs> I do have a shotgun. Just there you go. <laughs> um, but as I began to visit churches and do interviews, I saw part of the trajectory was young families as they're beginning to have children. There was this, uh, there's just this hunger of how do we do faith together as a family? Yes. And for instance, the title of your show, The Common Good, I think what the liturgy does is it allows us to do things in common. Mm. Um, and so much of modern evangelicalism has emphasized, and this comes out of modernity, kind of a very individualized you and Jesus. Yeah, you, know, right, you don't right. really need the church, and just go read the Bible and go pray in your prayer closet. But there's no tools beyond that. There's mm. no practices. And so the idea of a practice-based faith, what the liturgy and these ancient practices do, they they allow us to do faith together. Mm. And one of the powerful dynamics that kind of hit me was families with, with the draw to the liturgical tradition for young families is it gives them rhythms to take home. Um, it, it gives them tools and resources. So for instance, the church year is another great example. Um, you can, during the season of Lent, there are practices, there's habits. Uh, during Advent, which it kind of leads up to Christmas, a lot of families will break out an Advent wreath, and yeah. there are scriptures and prayers each week, and the kids can light candles, and there's there's a tactile kind of earthy kind of connection with mm. with that that I think the liturgy actually really connects and helps uh, bring discipleship into families' homes. Well, that's great. Winfield, we really appreciate you spending the time with us. Again, this has been Winfield Bevins. You can pick up his new book, Ever Ancient, Ever New, I'm sure on Amazon or wherever it is uh, that you get your books. You can follow him at winfieldbevins.com or also on Twitter uh, at Winfield Bevins. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Hey, it's been great. Thanks so much for having me. Yep, have a great day. Well, coming up next, Ian, we're going to talk about a crazy, crazy resurrection story out of South Africa. You're not going to want to miss this one. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. This is The Common Good with Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins on AM 1160. Hope for your life. AM 1160. 
Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You can always reach us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can give us a call at 312-660-2594, or you can find old content online at 1160hope.com. Ian, every now and then we come across just crazy stories, uh, just stories that are like, man, could that actually be true? What just happened there? And when I read this article with the, the title, I was like, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> South Africa, controversial pastor under fire after raising man back from the dead at a funeral. Well, Brian, why would he be under fire <laughs> after doing such a noble act? Jealousy. <laughs> <laughs> so he's under fire by a bunch of other local pastors. We're like, hey, we want to do that too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So basically the story goes that, that there was a resurrection at a funeral in South Africa. And people were amazed. They couldn't believe it. This televangelist by the name of Alf Lukau, pastor of Alleluia Ministries International Church, made headlines after footage of a funeral he officiated went viral. Literally, I saw the footage. They open up the casket, and a guy pops out. Oh, boy. And the people, like the parent, like the family is like, he's been dead. Like, mm. he's dead. Uh the backlash began when the funeral home, which transported the man presumed dead at the time, was vowing to take legal action. They were like, hey, no, I don't think he was ever dead in the first place. And whether they started to think this might be a hoax is the, the family, when they were transporting the, uh, the, uh, the casket, they could hear movement inside. Oh, no. And they said when they opened it, they claimed that he was, he was breathing. Uh, and so the whole thing's a hoax. Okay, so what am, what are we supposed to do with this story then? <laughs> it is a just a crazy story, but I want to I want to take it this route. So Lacau, uh, Lukau, uh, who also claims to possess the power to heal AIDS, tuberculosis, and other illnesses, has previously come under scrutiny for his lavish lifestyle. Uh, everything from wearing Armani suits to owning a, a jet, a Range Rover, a Bentley, oh, a Lamborghini, sure. a Rolls Royce, a Ferrari, and a three wheel custom bike. He's a prosperity gospel preacher, regularly flaunting his wealth on his int- Instagram page. And uh, okay, I'm, two, star- I'm starting to see the layers of this story now here. Two other South African pastors who also promote the prosperity gospel have faced criminal charges for profiting from so-called miracle healings. That Basically, the story goes they're making it up so that people will give them money. And I would just say this, that especially when it comes to the prosperity gospel, man, is there a lot of manipulation out there? Yeah, no kidding. I wish I could say I'm surprised by stories like this, but I'm I'm just not anymore. In fact, nope. I, I just saw a documentary on Netflix where uh, the guy's whole premise, he's a magician, and he would go around trying to disprove magicians. He had his own TV show, and he would have people who claimed to have certain abilities and powers, mm-hmm. and he would change the environment because he knew how the trick was done. Say, okay. Now move this paper or now move this. And, you know, when they couldn't, he would, he would call them out. And some of the people he went after were, uh, you know, these big money-making televangelists. And it was remarkable. He actually acquired, in some cases, um, the tapes or the transmissions of, like, people who worked for the televangelists um, feeding information into their ear. Like, hey, section three, row four, so-and-so just lost his wife or was just diagnosed with this and he's wearing a brown suit. And, like, literally out of a movie, people being coached how to scam people that showed up to this event um, who tend to be, let's be honest, the, the most vulnerable, people yes. who are the most susceptible. Um, I'm thinking of, like, celebrity mediums, people who are who so long to speak to a loved one who has passed or to have some kind of closure. And I think 
yeah, that's a that's a special kind of awful to go after uh, the people, particularly like in this story, people who are you know supposedly grieving. Yes. Um, to to make light of that or to to exploit that, not just for your own gain, but to do it in the name of Jesus. I don't yes. know if you can hear it in my voice or not. Like it's it's infuriating to me, and it's these kinds of stories. And I realize this is in a much different context than than we're in, but. I have friends all across the planet. They're like, see, that's exactly why I want nothing to do with that whole yep. tribe. Like, it's it's stories like this that give them uh, reason, I think, to be skeptical, which honest, at a pastoral level breaks my heart. It makes me really sad. And like you said, it's not in our part of the world. This is big in our part of the world. But, man, if you start reading stories about Africa and Latin America and stuff, it is the prosperity gospel that is far outpacing any other uh, religious teaching. And, yeah. and so— there is an entire continent of people uh, whose faith is being marked by this prosperity gospel that is so manipulative and so non-biblical, mm. and it's just a lie from the pit of hell is what it is because what it, it sounds good, uh, but then it's it's just not biblical. It's not real gospel, and so you know they often say right Satan gets us in subtle ways. It's a subtle like kind of being off theologically, and like you said, people are being exploited and they're just not knowing the actual good news of Jesus. They're instead being promised a bill of goods that that nobody can keep, and therefore uh, it is it is the name of Jesus that's getting besmirched. Well, and I and I do want to say too, though that's not to say that I personally, and I won't speak for you, uh, I believe that God does still move in absolutely powerful, miraculous ways 100%. in our world today. So that I, I think often the pendulum can swing too far the other way. Like I have a buddy, uh, Darren Wilson, uh, Wanderlust Productions. He's now created a number of films. Um, capturing on film across the planet, God doing like absolutely breathtaking things yep. that no one can explain. And the thing that I love about his story is that when he began making these films, he actually was like a full-fledged skeptic. He was a Christ follower, really? but a skeptic of the miraculous, and then started capturing some of these things and was like, well, shoot, now I have to at least interact with that. I like I figure you this know, out. I came face-to-face with something that I can't explain. And so it, I absolutely believe that God still does a thousand percent uh, break into our reality and do things that we can't explain. I'm with you. I, th- that's part of why I think this fires me up so much yes. is because when scammers are exposed, it often takes the legitimate stories with them. Yes. So people want to say, see, so the whole thing's a hoax. And and it can be really hard to parse when you, you know, like, no, 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 that was a hoax. But over here, that was legitimate. And if you're someone that's trying to, you know, think critically about miracles and the miraculous and the spiritual, uh, it's hard to not just get jaded by the whole the whole idea of miracles because, well, okay, we keep finding more and more scammers, not just scammers for their own fame, but also it's leading to, you know, line their pockets pretty generously as well. Like that, I don't know, that frustrates me in so many levels. I remember uh, my grandparents got involved with the whole PTL thing with Jim Baker and Jim and Tammy Faye Baker back in the 80s. Your parents were involved with them? My grandparents. Ah, okay, okay. Uh, Not involved like part of the organization, but instead like following. uh, Got uh, it, okay. I I one time or two times took a vacation to PTL. It was awesome. The whole Christian water park was great. Um, (laughs) Yes, a water park can be Christian. People get baptized every time. Is that how that went? They go down. (laughs) But man, it's just so sad. And and it's not like healings and stuff. It's instead a a give here and people, your money is going to do this. And then it doesn't do what it's promised to do. And now all your is is out out of money. And it's just so dangerous. Friends, you've got to be careful with your theology. Uh, Your theology really matters. Well, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up next, we're going to talk about the partisan divide that is all over our culture. Where does it come from? 
uh, what does it stem from? That's what's up next on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. AM 1160. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Back to the Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I am Brian Fromm. Uh, again, I am the lead pastor at Four Corners Community Church in Darien, and Ian is the teaching pastor at Community Christian Church, the Yellow Box, uh, in Naperville, Illinois. So we're going to talk a little bit about partisan politics. Ooh, I can't uh, wait. But first, can I just, can I, can I vent? Yeah, please do. Why not vent with a couple of microphones <laughs> <laughs> let me, on air? <laughs> let me just vent All right. across the Chicagoland. Um, so you and I, our show has been somewhat political, somewhat apolitical. I think people couldn't really listen to our show and know exactly how we would vote. But CPAC is going on right now. You know, you know what yep. CPAC is, kind of the conservative. Um, so <laughs> it's kind of like a it's kind of like a big rah-rah, um, you know, pep rally, I would pep put it rally. as. Pep yeah. rally, yeah. And as you could guess, President uh, Trump isn't there, but uh, he is a main uh, fixture of it. And, okay. and these are people who are genuinely support, generally supportive of him. Um, but what I would say is uh, it's getting a little crazy. What do you mean by that? And our partisanship is getting a little crazy. Let me read to you what I just read here. Uh, this guy who was speaking, he says he recalls his divine appointment when meeting Trump, telling the crowd God answered our prayers with a miracle in November 2016. And then there was applause. And then he said this. <laughs> I see the greatest president in history. Of course he is. Here you there is. Here's the money line. He was chosen by God. Okay. Man, I, what's going on with us? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Why do you say that? I'm curious. Tease that out a little bit for us. Why, why is that particular statement and that particular sentiment so rattling. It's you. this divination of of their their preferred presidential candidate and their president. I'm not, you know, whether you're anti-Trump or pro-Trump. I think to say that he was he's a miracle, a divine appointment, and chosen by God uh, is really dangerous because it allows him to get away with a lot of stuff. All right, it allows you to 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 say, well, that's not a big. He was placed by God to do this, so I don't care that he did X, Y, or Z. No man is infallible, right? And I also don't think it's healthy for the other side to be calling him, you know, essentially, you know, Satan. In, right, in, right, or Hitler. They're, they're, yeah, they're going to go the exact opposite direction. And if you're one of these people who says, no, I believe that God has placed the leaders in place here and that he is of God, then I would just say then you've got to say the same thing when your party isn't in office. Okay. Would you <laughs> yeah. agree with that, though? What, do you think that's a – because you're really – you're poking at a, a sovereignty and providence theology – which again, you know, is more complicated than we have time to unpack here. Correct. But um, statements like that, I think, are they can be sensational because exactly what you just read. Yep. I think on either side, you could say ah, that's a little, maybe it's a little much. But do we actually believe that uh, hired officials, uh, elected officials, appointed officials throughout the history of the world are in some way 
appointed by God? Do we believe they're appointed by God or approved by God or allowed by God? I didn't mean for all those to be A's, by the way. Because <laughs> you're a pastor. I realize my brain just works that way. But I will at least go with allowed. But this kind of feel of set apart <laughs> yeah, by God right. for this such a time as this, sure. right? There's a there's a savior feel to this language that's being used that feels really uncomfortable to me because it's still a fallen human being. Um, and it builds into the partisanship again of, you know, well, Barack Obama, some people would say, was the Antichrist, but Trump is now of God. Well, no, that you can't have it both ways. Yeah, right. You just can't have it both ways. Mm. Um, they're, they're fallible men um, who – you know, you want to believe the best of uh, the biggest thing I know that we as a church are called to do are to pray for these guys uh, across the aisle. How would you answer the question? You, you threw the <laughs> which, hard one. Which at me. question? Which question in particular? Uh, your three A's, right? Are they uh, <laughs> are they just put in there by God? Are they allowed by God? What? What? How do you look at the president? Or Gosh. you know, all the way down? You're the one who asked the question. <laughs> All the way yeah, down. Yeah, I wasn't expecting you to turn it on me. That's... Oh, that happens. You have not been on this show long enough. Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. It's, uh, I think it's a good question because I asked it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's certainly complicated, but I, I do think you're right. I think uh, we, it's really, really dangerous territory to start calling elected officials miracles. Yes. Um, now, in the sense that all life is a miracle, sure. You know, yep, that's yep, um, yep. Uh, a little bit of Wendell Berry there. Life is a miracle. But... <laughs> I, I man, I think it is important for us to, with with honesty, look back throughout history and acknowledge that elected and appointed officials have done some horrific things yep. under the guise of their selection by God Himself. Yep. And I, that's what I find a little bit um, frustrating at times because you'll you'll find people that can agree with that. Like, okay, so this isn't a great example, but I think of like the Puritans. The Puritans have written some of the most beautiful thoughts about uh, complicated aspects of theology, and yet a lot of them had slaves. Yeah. So I look at like, oh gosh, you wrote some really thought-provoking, intelligent things, and yet you were living out this reality that was deplorable, yeah. at least to my sensibilities, is absolutely evil. So huh, how do I reconcile those things? And so if you look at our leadership as divinely appointed you know, I think of even what it means to be uh, obedient to authority or submissive to authority, yes. and are those the same thing? Mm-hmm. I think of like a number of accounts in the book of Acts where uh, the early apostles were told not to keep preaching, yep. and they kept on preaching. Mm-hmm. And then they were jailed, and they seemed to, I don't know that we have the details there, but they were jailed, they were imprisoned, they were released, and then they kept on preaching. So they were actually disobedient to the empire, they were disobedient to the power structures of their time, yeah. but yet still submitted to, all right, well, we know that the, we know that the outcome, we know that the punishment is jail time, so we'll serve the jail time. Yeah. And then we're going to keep on preaching the, you know, kind of the infamous famous line is we're going to serve God rather than man. Yeah. Is there a space for Christ followers today, here and now to, to be under authority, but to not be afraid to speak truth to power yeah. when it misaligns with the mission of God. And I think that we've gotten, We've gotten those things pretty mixed up, and I think part of it is what you were touching on is that when we identify all authority as like miraculously appointed by God, it kind of guts our capacity, maybe even our interest, to speak truth to it because yes. we're like, well, who am I to speak truth to that? They're a miracle sent from on high, so yeah. I, there's no space for me to ever in any way um, poke or prod or, or speak ill against policies or personality, and I think that, that, gets, that gets out of control quickly. That's great. We have a savior already. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, we've got a savior, and so that's where the language we are certainly supposed to biblically 
uh, like you said, there is a um, there is a paying of your taxes. There is a being under authority. But like you said, we have a higher authority. And, and I just get so uncomfortable with this language of he's a miracle set. Like it's like this. He's higher than us. And this happens on both sides of the aisle. They're higher than us sent by God to lead us into the promised land. And you're mm. just like, no, there's already been someone who's been sent to lead us. Yeah, right. And uh, and so vote, people vote, be engaged, do all this, but please have the right the right balance. I think that's what I want to try to strike here is to not confuse things, like have the right balance, know who your savior is already. Yeah, and be, and be willing to be wrong, right? Yeah. Be willing to actually listen to opposing dissenting opinions, to not, to not be so in bed with one particular party or one particular um people group or try any of those things to okay. say, okay, yeah, we may have, we may have missed it in some ways. And that's, and that I think is maturity to say, yeah, I actually did hold this five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, or I did, I was a single issue voter or whatever that is. Yep. And, and, uh, and in the last, you know, amount of time, God has expanded my perspective on, yep. on what matters and to allow for that, I think is really important too. Thanks for letting me take a left turn there. <laughs> of course. Man. I was playing on Twitter and I read that and I was just like, Oh, that makes me so angry. I wish I had a radio show. <laughs> oh wait. <laughs> I have one of those. <laughs> it's a miracle. It's a mir- I wish I had a pulpit. When I got one of those. Wait, I had a mir- oh, I got oh, one of those. goodness. There we go. We'll talk about pulpit and politics another time. <laughs> well, coming up next, we're speaking of left turns. We're going to go into your life here. You and I, we came across an article that talks about parents and newborns and sleep and the effect, the years of effect it has on your life. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. This is The Common Good with Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Have you seen how many new likes we got? That is you asking your friends. You are you are really on this uh, like us affirm us kick right no, now. No, aren't I'm you? not. I'm not. I just uh, it was it's uh, it more is an acknowledgement of how many friends you have. Oh gosh, I don't like this conversation. This is like when I got people just to call for your birthday. That's that's true. I, let's, let's relive that day. We're gonna let it go for a little while to when people forget that it, that it was your birthday. I'm gonna tell them again it's your birthday, and we're gonna do that all over again. Like every three months, I'm just gonna be getting your birthday phone calls. Or your birthday is coming up, and I'm already hatching but a it's plan. On Saturday. Gosh darn it. <laughs> Shoot, I didn't even look at that. <laughs> you can follow us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, online at 1160hope.com. You could always call us at 312-660-2594. Ian, we've only been doing this for six weeks or so, but in the span of that, you guys, you and your wife had a new baby. That's right. And uh, we've made a lot of jokes, but how's the sleep going? How's it going? <laughs> I mean, truthfully, better for me than for my wife, and that's not that's not a conscious decision, pun intended. My, I grew up in a huge family, and so I've I've literally slept through smoke alarms. I oh, remember wow. a smoke alarm went off in my room, and then breakfast that next morning, everyone was talking about it, and I was like, "What are you guys? What are you talking about? Really?" And they're like, "Ian, the fire was in your room." <laughs> I'm like, "Oh, I had no like." So it, so that really is uh, for better or for worse. I I can sleep through anything, and so sometimes uh, you know I'll think the night went pretty well. And I'll make the mistake of asking my wife, like, wow, 
he slept pretty well last night. She's like, I don't, I don't think you realize. It's like that look that says, I hate you. And you're like, can I She doesn't that hate me. She it's doesn't. just that look that says that. It's that look. No, she's, she's, a, she's a real rock star, That's though. It's, it's, it actually has been pretty rough. I can remember those times I would tell my wife. We had bad sleepers with all three of our kids when they were babies. And I can remember uh, doing the same thing. I would say to my wife, like, oh, I felt like last night was pretty good. <laughs> And then I would just get That's that one look, and I would be like, oh, I really wish I could take all those words <laughs> yeah, back. Yep, yep. Um, but yeah. And the reason we bring this up, other than we want to know how your life is going, is that, does your oldest kid sleep well now? He's actually done pretty good. Good. He he wakes up with a vengeance. You know, I, I like. I feel like every time I see a depiction in a movie, or like a you know one year old just sort of like slowly squeaks awake, and I'm like, he throws everything that's in the crib as hard against the wall as he can, and just like just just war cries as loud as he can. Oh, that's hilarious! It I is amazing. Yes, yeah. uh, we came across an article that is titled this, and you're gonna—I don't know if you're gonna weep at this or you're gonna be happy <laughs> about this. It says this: Parents can expect less sleep for the first six years of their child's life. Hooray! Mom and dad shouldn't <laughs> expect their sleep habits to bounce back to the way they were before kids for at least the first six years of their child's life, according to a new long-term study involving nearly five thousand parents. So. Hey, you'll get a good night's sleep in six years. You know what? To be honest, I haven't had a good night's sleep in a long time. Anyway, I'm not a good. I'm just not a good sleeper. I, like, I've I'm always been a night owl. Way. Really, I'm the same way. I never have been. I've. Uh, I'm always the early riser and all this. Um, well, I'm not that either. No, <laughs> you just don't sleep well. I just don't sleep well. No, nope. oh, that's funny. I'm. I. I sleep well, but I'm. We could be on vacation, and I'm up at like six thirty. Like I'm the old guy. My wife can sleep in. And we've had, I have this running joke with her that says, I'm going to be the old, when we're retired, I'm going to be the old guy who goes to McDonald's with like the other old guys at 530 in the morning and talks about the sports and the news. And right. That. And then I come home and wake her up at like eight. Gosh. <laughs> That's going to be so our much life. much cooler than I am. That's going to be our life. That's at least what I want our life to be. <laughs> it does make me think of this, man. And, and I'm, you know, I'm no wise sage, but my kids are further along than yours are. I think one of the things we do really badly as parents across the spectrum, and in, not even just parents, just mm-hmm. life in general, is we always look towards the next season. Yeah, We're right. always looking to what's next. Like, oh, this is going to be great when my kids sleep. Yeah, This is going to be great when my kids go to school or they're out of diapers. This yep. could be great when my kids go to college. And we're always looking for the next thing. And I think a lot of us, myself included, and most people I know are really bad at living in the present. Yeah. And what ends up happening is we realize that the days are long, but the years are short. And yep. then also we look back and we're like, like I was telling you before off air that I have a daughter now in high school who will often stay up after us. Yeah, right. That's a weird dynamic. I'm and, sure. You know, she's in high school. You're starting to think about college and driving and all of these things. And, you know, I, I want to ask this question. What's it like to live? How do we live in the present? What's that even look like? Yeah. I think, man, that's a great question. It's, it's, it's honestly why I'm so excited about this interview coming up next with Casey Tigert, who's writing a book right now about memories and the, oh, awesome. the significance and importance of memories, because I, I'm right there with you. I remember years ago, my mom called me back home, said, I have a bunch of your stuff in the attic. You got to clean it up. Found a bunch of my journals. I discovered oh. a couple of things. I'm a really terrible journaler. I have a really weird sense of humor. But the theme, <laughs> though, that, yeah, I shock her, <laughs> I'm sure. But the theme that kept showing up, though, in all of my journals was I can't wait until like oh, ever since wow. I was 10. I was like, man, I can't wait until high school. That's when stuff really happens. I can't wait until college. That's when I'll kind of figure out who I really am. And I think, man, I've been sleepwalking through whole seasons of my life ever since I was a kid because I was so intent on looking at the next thing, which isn't in and of itself bad. You know, to have have a vision, have an idea for the future, to have a plan. But I do think 
speaking of myself personally, so yeah. so often I can get so hyper focused and obsessed with what that next thing is or that next hill to climb mm. that I do I do miss it. And so you mentioned we are in the season right now where uh, our youngest is just waking up every hour, and my oldest is climbing on everything, which is giving us panic attacks every twelve minutes. And there, it is easy to think, and sometimes people will even give encouragement in this regard, like, hey, just hold out for a couple more years or yeah. a couple more months or a couple more weeks. It gets better, um, which I believe them. And I know that people are often trying to be encouraging. But the prayer that I find myself praying more and more these days, if I'm really honest, is God, help me to be really present even in the chaos of yep. this. And that is sometimes <laughs> feels like a masochistic prayer to pray yeah. because the present is like, oh, everyone's screaming and throwing up and throwing things. <laughs> like <laughs> This is a weird thing to be present in, which I think is yep. part of the problem. Yep. So often we look at the complexity of whatever life stage we're at and we think, oh, down the road, that, then it'll be better. Then it'll be, be better. Rather than like, all right, God, what, what are you revealing to me about yourself, yes. about your character, about who I am and who I'm becoming right here and now? And I think some of like even the, the practices that Winfield was talking about, this this idea of um, developing rhythms and practices of learning to be present, seeing them as spiritual practices yeah. is so difficult and so important and was so integral to the life and rhythm of the early church, I think for the same reasons, because it's easy for us to just simply look out there as opposed to being present in what's happening right here. It, it happens. I find it happening in every se- every area of my life too, like with kids like when I was in your stage with little ones, you're like, oh, I can't wait till they're out of the diapers or out of this. But then you just move into new seasons. Now I'm in the busy season. Yeah, right, right. right. Uh, and now I'm in like, you know, my daughter, like I said, she's in high school. I'm starting to have the emotional season of like, mm. you know, I'm hearing cats in the cradle in my mind. Or I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, it's almost over. You know, like right. is this season coming and my other Which ones, is not almost over. No, she's it's not. Right, you still have a long time. Absolutely. And, and but you just start thinking in these mm. ways and. Mm. And you just want time to slow down. But I, I you know, I started a church, and uh, as a church planter, you often you do the same thing. I at least do the same thing in my church. Like it's not re- really enough just to think about the congregation we have now and to build in them and loving them, but to say, oh, how do we get the new people? How do we go to this next thing? How do we mm. conquer this next hill? Which is all good. We need to have vision and, and goals. Totally. But also, we need to live in like who we are now and enjoy the moment in our churches. I, I struggle with that across the board. Yeah, yeah. I think of Jacob who. I think it was Genesis something, Genesis 17, I forget what it is. 147. Genesis 147, he said, uh, <laughs> surely God was in this place, and I wasn't aware of it. Yeah, like, yeah, I think yeah. of that, I'm like, I don't want to live a life like that. Yeah. I don't I don't want to uh, go through Facebook memories and old photo albums and say, oh, man, God was doing such a work in my life, and I didn't have eyes to see it because I was just too busy going a million miles a minute. God, help me to have eyes to see your presence at work, even in the mess and the chaos and the stress of whatever right now looks like. Yeah, and so I would say out there, you know, again, we're in very different stages as parents, but like enjoy the moment, even yeah. if even if the moment is hard and messy, the chances are the next moment's going to be hard and messy too. Yep. And man, I even like you're you're entering into the stage. If I hear Elmo right now, I get like nostalgic. <laughs> if I hear this, I get nostalgic, and I love the season we're in right now. But you also miss the seasons, and and you don't want to just miss them. And where you look back at old journals or old pictures, going. Yep. Oh, yeah. I don't really remember that, but it yeah. must have been good. Like, yep. You know, we want to be present. So. Absolutely. Uh, as Ian mentioned, uh, coming up next, we are going to interview uh, an author by the name of Casey Tigret. He's a friend of Ian's, but also just has some fascinating things to say. So we hope you continue to join us. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. This is The Common Good with Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
1160. Coming up next on The Common Good, Ian and I are going to talk to an author, pastor, and podcaster by the name of Casey Tigret about his new book, As I Recall, Discovering the Place of Memories in Our Spiritual Life. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good. But first, you might remember the worship albums called City on a Hill with artists like Jars of Clay, Third Day, Phil Kagey, and Sixpence None the Richer. It was compiled by a band called The Choir, who wrote the praise song God of Wonders. The Choir will be live in concert along with Michael Rowe on Friday, March 22nd at the Warehouse Church in Aurora. And it's a free concert. See all the details and reserve your seat at thechoir.net. That's thechoir.net. AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or online at 1160hope.com. Ian, we're excited to be joined in studio right now uh, by Casey Tigret. In the flesh. In the flesh. Let me give you Casey's background before we jump in here. Casey's an author, pastor, and hope of the Otherwise podcast. And he has a new book coming out called As I Recall, Discovering the Place of Memories in Our Spiritual Life, which releases uh, in April. Thanks for joining us so much. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you, guys. Well, let me just ask you, tell us about the book. Why'd you write it? Kind of, you know, what's the thumbnail sketch? What's it about? I wrote it because I find myself in various ways, whether it's as a pastor or as a husband or as a you know, father or, you know, in various interactions, when I talk to people, most of what we're talking about is stuff that's happened in the past. Mm -hmm. And, but also part of my life is working in the area of spiritual formation. And I feel like our conversations in formation are always about what are you going to do next Mm -hmm. rather than how do we get where we are? And so as I started looking at memories, I, I discovered that, you know, you and I, all of us are the way we are because of our memories. Mm -hmm. They make us who we are. And if that's the case, then then following Jesus means we're going we're gonna to need to process through that mm. and find out what God has in mind for those things that have happened in the past. Well, I think that's a brilliant premise. And one of the things that you do uh, that I really resonate with is you, you actually talk about some of the brain science of memories. And I know at the surface, a lot of times, uh, even personally, the way that I write sermons, that's something that I always want to try to include. And uh, I'm curious for someone who's thinking, okay, wait, I thought this was a book about spiritual things, spiritual formation? Why is it important to think through brain science and physiology? Why are those things important when thinking through this idea of memories? Yeah, it's um, it's getting back to what the word soul actually means. Mm-hmm. Soul is, it's the whole burrito. It's your entire <laughs> life wrapped. So your mm. brain, your body, your intangibles. And mm. So the way we understand God first begins with the way that our brains work. So we have a parent who teaches us how to pray when we're kids. Mm. We carry that way of praying. I mean, I learned to pray from a bunch of really rootin' tootin' West Virginia, (laughs) Southern Nazarenes. And I still, like, occasionally, I'm so far away from that. And still occasionally I'm like, whoo, glory. (laughs) (laughs) And so where does that come from? Like, it's in there. That's that's great. And you figure out, your brain takes that stuff and Mm. it archives it and it puts it away. And then you start using it and you don't even know you're using it. Right. Yeah. So to be transformed, if you've got, that's great. I mean, that's a positive one. Mm. Well, if you get a broken piece in there and it files itself away, redemption comes when you start engaging with that's in there. How did it get there? What is God going to do with it now? That's so good. 
In your book, you use the imagery you said here of collecting shells to talk about how we cultivate the memories we have and how those memories affect us. Talk about that imagery a little bit of collecting shells. Yeah, while I was writing, I I always try and find a picture that we can we can play with. Yeah. And uh, I was looking at the shelf next to my desk, and we have this big jar of shells that we've collected, my family and I, on different vacations. And I think about those, and when I look at the shells, I don't just think, oh, look, shells. I think, <laughs> oh, hey, that blue one we found when we were in the Cayman Islands. Oh, yeah. And that one we found, and this one we found. And then as you're picking them up, as you go, like some of them are beautiful on the outside, all the way around, perfectly shaped. And then some of them are like gnarly, gross on the outside. <laughs> and you flip them upside down, and they're all translucent yeah. blue on the bottom. Hmm. And you're like, ooh, that, that's disgusting and beautiful at the same time. <laughs> wow. And that's yeah. like, we've got memories like that. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah. The things that we'd say, you know what, if I could go back and do it again, I wouldn't change a thing. Mm. Those are the shells that are gross on the top, beautiful on the bottom. Gosh, that's such a good analogy. I love that. All right. So one of the things that I've noticed about you in your preaching, in your writing is uh, you are uniquely personal in a way that I, I find to be really authentic. I think is really authentic. Oh, good. <laughs> and the, the book has a number of like pretty personal, vulnerable stories with... Does that come easy for you? Is that natural? And, and was there a particular chapter or a story that was hard for you to tell because because of the level of vulnerability that you show? Yeah, I, I find that when, I, when I'm working with people, I, I'm a spiritual director. And mm. one of the ways that we connect best is to find out that somebody else's soul has been through some of the same things we have. Mm. And so being able to share some of that really difficult stuff. There's a chapter on the Psalms um, where I talk about memories and emotions. Mm. And we divorce emotions from faith all the time. Yeah, right. Oh, it's about faith. It's not about feeling. I'm like, well, you can't have one without the other. That's good. And I talk about three things that happened in one particular year of my life, and I, I won't spoil it, but they are, they are the kinds of things that when I look back, I say each one of those had the potential to completely wreck my whole future. Wow. Mm. And when I think about them, I actually remember a Dire Straits song. <laughs> yeah. Please, please sing us a and little. So, this is a first. No, it's a first. <laughs> no, I, that's a. I need a compassionate move here, not to ruin the ears of your, list, your listeners. They're invested. They're. I, You're a good pastor. I'm going to pastor their ears right now, oh, that's man. Good. Pastor so, their ears. No, we need to do more of that. Probably the two of us. <laughs> the pastoring their ears. Their ears. Right? <laughs> Tell us this. Is there a way that this concept of memory kind of addresses the cultural moments that we find ourselves in right now? Oh, that's good. Yeah, I, we, live, we live so Google, um, mm. oh, and our, our search results don't go back much further than like a year or two. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we feel like we're in a moment that has never happened before. Mm-hmm. And to be able to look at church history or American history or our own family's recent history and go, oh, no, that we've been there before. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. That's where we learn wisdom. And so I feel like we're in a wisdom deficit as a culture. Yeah. We've got a lot of knowledge. <laughs> we just, you know, Gosh. I, one time my, my hot water heater pilot light went out and I went on YouTube to find a way to relight it because yeah. I didn't know. There were 11,000 <laughs> videos. And I'm like, which of these guys isn't going to blow up my house? <laughs> yeah, right, right. We're dealing with fire here. This so, is important. Plenty of information, but no wisdom. Yeah. Like, wow. Which of these ones? And so I feel like this memories tie into our cultural moment because we desperately need less yes. info and a little more wisdom with what we do with it. That's good. Okay. So one of the things that, uh, in particular for me, I always resonate with is, is people who speak intelligently to the idea of rest and rhythms. And at the end of each chapter of your book, you give sort of this pause, which is a language that I use a lot because the, it convicts me the most. I just kind of go a million miles a minute all the time. Why? Why? Why these moments of pause and why is that so important uh, right here and now? Why is that so hard for us to actually do well? 
I wish this had a, a more sacred answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as, I, as I'm writing the book, uh, every chapter, you know, there's a there's a push in me because my background is in spiritual formation. Right. And so I want to help people take what's written and do something with it. Mm. And I keep creating these practices. And I kept thinking, man, I'm just exhausted creating these practices for mm. people. And I thought, well, if I'm exhausted and I'm writing this thing. Right. The people who are reading it probably are not going to be much better off. So I said, why don't every once in a while, after a chapter, we put in a pause and go, hey, just stop doing stuff. That's so good. And just think about this. Oh, mm. man. Like get in your car, or hang out with your kids, or, you know, in the shower, which is where all of our great ideas come from. Of course. 100%. <laughs> take, the, take this and just sit with it. And so don't do, but just kind of be present with yeah. this idea. That's so, so good. That's why that's there. I that's love good. that. That's good. That's plenty sacred, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yes. Well, I feel like it is, but you know, how it came about, not so much. I love it. So uh, in one part of the book, you say that reading scripture is like mining other people's memories. Just what do you mean by that? Talk oh, about man. that a little bit. Yeah. So I think sometimes we feel like the Bible fell out of the sky mm. as a whole piece. Mm. And when you're reading things like Exodus, Leviticus, whatever, it, those, are, those aren't like somebody standing off to the side with a notepad like, <laughs> oh, wait, how many goats is that? <laughs> Oh, it's so good. Wait. Yes. Okay, I think I got it. Like a stenographer yeah, just on yeah. site. It's like, say that again, Moses. We missed that last part. Uh, Next time it, with feeling. Yeah, right? yeah. Was that an R or sound? Uh, but instead, afterwards, these, these things were all collected. and But first, they were passed around. Mm. They were passed around campfires and hearths mm-hmm. and tables, around meals and Passovers. And so people are rem- not just writing down. But they're archiving their memories of God and people and stuff and yeah. all that coming together. And so we're really diving into somebody else's field of memories wow. when we're reading the scriptures. Wow. We're having the pleasure right now to talk to Casey Tigret about his new book, As I Recall, Discovering the Place of Memories in Our Spiritual Life. Coming up next, Casey's gonna stay right here with us. So we're gonna we're gonna keep talking. Uh, for a little bit more about this book, and then maybe we'll get a little bit bigger about why do you write and just mm. some pastoral questions and other stuff like that. Sounds good. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. This is The Common Good with Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, uh, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. And Ian, we have the pleasure of being joined again by Casey Tigret. Uh, we spent last second, segment talking about Casey's new book, As I Recall, do- Discovering the Place of Memories in Our Spiritual Life, which we would highly encourage you to get. It releases in April. True. Uh, but Casey, off of your book, I would just ask you this question, uh, kind of on a bigger level, why do you write? That sounds, as someone who's never written a book, it sounds like an enormous, it sounds like climbing Mount Everest. So do you enjoy writing? Why do you invest in writing? Talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, um, it's it's one of those things that I feel like is still such a, I mean, we're in such a digital communication age and the idea of a printed book is still feels kind of like, okay, that's, that eventually is going to go away, right? right. It's eventually going to go, and it doesn't go away. Mm. And I think it's a way that we still, especially for whatever reason, in Christian discipleship and, and in Christian thinking, books are still a, a way that we engage mm. in dialogue. Uh, it's a safer way. Like, mm. So there's not as much of this like, dislike, comment. You don't get, you don't get trolled on a book. <laughs> that's true. 
That's a and good so, point. But that's not why I write. That, that's one of the gifts. <laughs> you write, funny. You write like to the, not be trolled. I like the trolls. Um, <laughs> I like the trolls. <laughs> is, it's sort of a, and it's ex, it's an extension. It's an extension of the things that God has done in me. Mm. And just this is the place where when I do it, um, I hate to, you know, the, the Eric Liddell line has been used so much, but it's that place where you feel like you're Absolutely. alive. Yeah. And so to your point, like it is a big, massive, mm-hmm. self-critical, you get to the end, you're like, this is awful. Nobody's going <laughs> to like it. I don't even like it. And, uh, and then you want to burn it and throw it away. <laughs> right. And then somebody says, Hey, that idea really clicked with me. And you mm-hmm. go, this is the greatest thing that's ever been written. <laughs> Is that how it works? Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> and then sometimes they're like, no, no, it still stinks. Yeah, so right. like, oh. please, please don't ever voice that on humanity again. <laughs> <laughs> but I write, it's just an extension of I feel like what, what God has given me to That's do awesome. in the world. So Okay, so speaking of honoring the physical medium, uh, you also have a podcast, right? I do, I do. <laughs> the podcast is called Otherwise. Yes. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the podcast, but also... Like, what do you see as the correlation between the podcast and that process and then writing books and that process? And is there any crossover? Yeah, yeah. I think it's the creative work of doing both. I mean, in both, you're trying to bring across something that is difficult to bring across Mm. in a very short, even books, like in a short medium. And Mm. you know people are going to pay attention to a certain amount of it. So the podcast is about uh, living wisely along Mm. the journey with Jesus, Mm. like finding the ways and from various voices. So we've had poets, we've had novelists, we've had English teachers, we've had, you know, writers and and all kinds of pastors and all kinds of different people Mm. who are able to say, this is one way of walking wisely. Mm. And so I just love to capture that and the very personal side of it. Honestly, I started the podcast because I thought it'd be fun. Mm. (laughs) And when it stops being fun, I'll probably stop doing it. That's brilliant. But the creative work is is still pretty energizing. So same with books. When that stops being energizing, Mm. when I start getting exhausted by it all the time, um, I'll probably switch to, you know, Radio. <laughs> you're, you're, competition. Nah, you're welcome anytime, man. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Fired. Oh, that's funny. Uh, so your book's coming out. I'm always curious. So if somebody runs into a church or on the street, they're like, hey, I read your book. What do you hope the next line is? Not uh, I told other people is probably what you hope. But yeah. when they say this is what I got from your book, what do you what do you kind of hope people say to you? I, I really hope they say after I read your book, I dug into some stuff in my life mm-hmm. that had happened in the past. I had no idea how much it shaped me. And now God is starting the work of redeeming junk that I didn't think had any value whatsoever. Wow. Mm-hmm. wow. That's a, I feel like that should be the goal of ministry, of podcasting, <laughs> of radio, like that. Can you write that down? Yeah. That was brilliant. Somebody catch that. There you go. <laughs> Luck, luckily, we tape these shows. Oh, <laughs> these are recorded. Yes. We have the technology. Yes. Well, people may not know, you also, you have a couple of other books, and one that um, was honestly pretty transformative for me was Becoming Curious. Yeah. And and I realize I'm probably showing some of my confirmation bias here or affinity bias. I just yeah. like you. But the, the idea of curiosity as a spiritual practice, like can you talk a little bit about the premise of that book and why that's important. And I imagine there's probably some correlation between that book to the book that, you know, you're releasing in April. Like why, what, what about curiosity is so important? Yeah. Asking questions when we're born, 
we curiosity is our native software mm. it's mm. how babies understand the world it's how kids understand the world wow. and kids up to the age of four ask 300 to 400 questions a day mm. so strap in <laughs> yeah. yes exactly <laughs> I can't it's coming wait. your way and you know can't that, wait. that's each child yeah. you know? Gosh. <laughs> a child per child but we lose that through the rest of our life mm. and mostly because i think it's because we finally re- we come to realize socially that to ask questions shows that you don't know And so when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom is near, this brand new thing is coming, it's something we don't know anything about. Mm. And so when a kid comes into a new world, they ask Mm. questions to figure it out. When we are born into this new kingdom that Jesus is bringing. So questions then become a spiritual practice, discovering Mm. the world, the kingdom of God around us and beginning to live into it. And that's why Jesus asks so many questions. That's so good. It's good. So we keep listing all of your different things. You're also a pastor. (laughs) And so I always like to ask pastors who join us, because a lot of times what Ian and I have to do on this show or end up doing is talking a lot about the negative stuff in our culture and the mm. churches. And But what makes you hopeful? What makes you hopeful for the church or, um, yeah, what makes you hopeful about uh, this time that we're in now? Yeah, I th- I think there are there are spaces. Our church, uh, Parkview Christian Church in Orland Park, we, mm-hmm. we open the door for conversations mm-hmm. and, and questions. And... I think the more that we are able to do that as the church, it number one changes the reputation yeah, no of kidding. churches in general, no and uh, it makes space for people who are like, "I would love, I really would love Jesus mm. if I didn't feel like you guys didn't want to hear what I had to say." Yeah, mm, right. and uh, so through what I do in spiritual direction, through uh, I've, I'm seeing more and more churches talking about this is. We want to create a space where you can where you can talk about this stuff, yeah. mm. and we're being honest. I'm seeing a lot more transparency in preaching and teaching. Yeah. Wow. Um, and I imagine I'll see more as we get into a bigger, as we get into recovery over some of these massive failures that have happened, there just needs to be more people telling the truth yeah. about themselves. And, you know, that's like you asked about the book is, you know, the honest chapters. Mm. Um, I really try hard to just turn out my pockets when I preach. Like there's, mm. there's lint in there is whatever. It's yep. you know, candy wrappers. We're just going to turn that out. And in a safe way, right? Like I don't right. dump my Samsonite on the platform and kind of teach, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, but put put it out there in a way that people can go. Oh, so okay, so if that guy's doing that and he's trusted yes. to be up there, totally. Uh, I think yeah. I think this is okay. I might be all right. That's so good, man. All right, so like a minute or less. I know your book hasn't even released yet. Yeah. What's next for you though? Like you have a podcast, you're a pastor, you're an author. I'm assuming. Didn't you, and I just talk, didn't you and I just talk about living in the moment? I know. Yeah. And I, we live in that moment, <laughs> and now, now I want to know what's next. Right? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, continuing to write. I'm, wor- I'm working on another project right now um, that just it's in the development phase. Um, continuing to do the podcast. Um, some some really good new guests that I've already recorded. Kelly Fabian is one. Yes. Ed Zeski is yes. another. Um, some really thoughtful people. Great interviews. And then just continuing uh, continuing the work of creating new things. I mean, there's always a like blank sheet on my computer. That's like, okay, that's good. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah. (laughs) What's up next? What do we do now? That's so good, man. Always the blank sheet. I like that. I like that. So as we close, you have any good Ian stories when we bring friends in? I don't, I think we're out of time. Everybody. Thanks thanks for joining us. (laughs) Safe. It'll be on the podcast, right? It'll be on the podcast. Well, Casey, thank you so much for joining us. You can find Casey at caseytigret.com. And we'd encourage you in April to get his new book, As I Recall, Discovering the Places of Memories in Our Spiritual Life. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Have a great night, Chicagoland.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.